Last week, we hit one of the high watermarks of hope in the Old Testament, maybe even in the entire Bible, especially true in the book of Micah. And I want you to notice as we read this morning that he goes from this high and future point to the roughshod and dark reality that we live in today. He moves from the in that day to the now. In fact, uh, starting in verse 6 and then again later in chapter 4 and then the opening verse of uh, chapter 5, that word now is repeated. There's a clear focus in this passage on the present tense. And it is the disparity, it is the distance between these two things, between, uh, you know, and we will sit under our own vine and our own fig tree and nothing will make us afraid. And the text of where we actually live today that creates the tension and the purpose for this passage. Now, before we read the passage, let me remind you that as we're working through the book of Micah, our focus is to use it as a litmus test to determine the contours or the shape of a Christian understanding of justice and injustice. That's one of Micah's greatest purposes, and so this morning, we need to explore the relationship between justice and suffering. Let's uh, read starting in verse 6 of chapter 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze, you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their grain to the Lord, the wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Let's pray. Father, life is designed in such a way that our only option is to live in the now. We can reflect on the past and we can look towards the future, but we find ourselves always, continuously, in the now. And when we add the tension, Lord, of uh, all the things we know are not as it should be, as we look back to your design in creation and your good proclamation over all that you had made that it was good, and then we look at the now. Whereas when we look forward to the things that you've promised to complete in Jesus Christ, not just in our lives, but in our world, 
and then we return to the present, we struggle. Sometimes we even despair. We wrestle with the reality that is, and we wonder, like the Jews of Micah's day, where is God? And so I pray, Lord, as we look at this text this morning, that you would help us to have a robust theology of suffering. One that doesn't just exist in our minds, or one that we shoo away with platitudes and escapism, but one where we embrace the pain, knowing that it's the very pain of labor. And at the end of the labor is newness of life. We ask that you would help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage begins, as our last passage was, looking forward. Right? In the opening verses, it says again, in that day, which is this classic prophetic phrase that looks forward. Not this day, that day. In that day, declares the Lord, he says, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. Now that's positive. That's a regathering. That's a restoration. But it's positive with an asterisk. Right? Because what does he say about the people he's going to gather? That they're lame and afflicted and even here uh, that, he, that they're the ones that he has afflicted. Okay. And so even here, there's a Uh, prophetic edge to Micah's message that there will be restoration, but before restoration comes exile. There will be health, but before health comes affliction. But nonetheless, it focuses on the future. It sets a positive mark, and at that time, they will be a strong nation, and it finishes in verse 7 saying, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So this eternal future of God setting things right, of taking the throne over the earth and bringing about the justice and the peace and the prosperity that we saw last week is very present in this passage. In fact, it builds to verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. And so it looks here to the future and reaches back into the past, the promises that were given to King David. And then notice verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Do you feel the shift there? Do you see how we go from this future king to the absence of a king in the present? Do you see how we go from a future hope to the despair of the now? When it says here, is there no king in you? It's probably referring to what's about to happen. You see, Micah is living during the days of Assyria. Assyria has already wiped out the ten northern tribes, and they are the big threat on the scene. But Judah stands self-righteously saying, look, we have the king from the line of David. Look, we have the temple where God dwells. There is no threat to us whatsoever. And God says, you've missed something in your calculus, which is that you are bloodthirsty and unjust and do not keep my ways. And he says, you don't need to worry about the other armies. You need to worry about me. And so what happens is Babylon, who's mentioned by name in this passage, who when Micah is writing is not a significant character on the world scene. The great empire, the great threat of Micah's day is Assyria. But a hundred years later, Babylon comes literally out of podunk nowhere and becomes a massive power, defeating not just Assyria, but extending Assyria's kingdom and eventually 
taking out Jerusalem and Judea with it and taking all of the people who lived in Jerusalem and removing them to their own land in Babylon as their captives. So he foresees this coming, and along that line, two things happen. First, Jehoiachin is arrested by the king of Babylon for not keeping his treaty because he's quietly working in the sidelines with other powers like Egypt to try and fight back against Babylon. So he gets arrested, taken to Babylon, and lives out the rest of his days in Babylon. And then two kings later, Zedekiah makes another mistake, and Babylon decides he's had enough with the Jews, and he destroys Jerusalem, and he tanks King Zedekiah, and he puts out both of his eyes. And that's the end of the reign of the kings of Judah. In fact, it's the end of Jerusalem and Judea in particular. Okay? And so when he says here, is there no king within you? Why are you crying? This is really going to happen. They're going to experience it firsthand. They're going to go from king to no king, and that's despite the hope of this future kingdom. Okay? That's the tension of this passage. That's the twist. Here, he's basically said, rejoice, because this is your hope. And then he says, why are you crying? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? And then notice he says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now, you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and there you shall go to Babylon. There, he says at the end of verse 10, you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And let's remember a couple of things as we think through this. First, Babylon is the enemy. And so when he says, you're going to be deported first, and then I will save you from their enemies, the natural thought is, well, why not now? Right? Here, they're crying out for rescue. Here, they're crying out, having lost their king, lost their counselor. Doesn't Isaiah say that God is the wonderful counselor? And he says, I will save you, but not from exile, but through it. He has a plan here. He has an intention. In fact, here's one of the extenuating circumstances of this plan. It's not just Babylon that are the enemies of Israel, but as we mentioned, God, who is the enemy of Israel, because they've made themselves his enemies with their choices and behavior. And so effectively, in fact, notice this language at the end of verse 10. There you shall be rescued. From there the Lord will redeem you. Those two words together, rescue and redeem, that's classic Exodus language. You remember the beginning of Israel's history? How they're enslaved and being controlled uh, and even genocidally, uh, you know, population controlled by the people of Egypt. And the Lord hears their voice and he sends Moses to deliver them and he brings them out. He redeems them. That's the language it uses in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even in the prophets looking backwards. And so here they're hoping for another Exodus and instead they get an exile. But actually, as we see here, that exile is an exodus. Okay. Now, notice verse 11. It says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. 
And then in verse 13, he basically says, I will empower you, I will strengthen you, you will win the war. But which is it? Is it exile or victory? And the point here is that here again we return all the way to the future. In fact, I would suggest to you if you wanted a verbal timeline of what happens, there is a now that goes all the way from the destruction of Jerusalem to verses 11 and 13, and then we get to in that day. In other words, there's a present age and a coming age. And here in this passage, it marks both the beginning and the end of that age, and that is especially significant for us this morning. Because I want you to notice that the now in this passage is a now of suffering. It's a now of difficulty. It's a now of defeat. It's a now of failure. Then, victory, redemption, hope. The reason why I bring that up is because this methodology, if you will, that the Lord uses to deliver Israel, not keeping them from judgment, but carrying them through it. Not giving them victory, but actually using the exile for a greater victory. There's a tendency, I think, for us to say, well, yeah, but that's Old Testament. Yeah, but that's Israel. But now Jesus has come, the victory is ours, and so we as Christians live in triumph. However, verses 11 through 13 are clearly still future events. It speaks of the same events as Revelation 19, when all the nations of the world stand against the people of God and Jesus returns, ends the war instantaneously, and sets up his kingdom. That's what 11, 12, and 13 point to, just like the beginning of chapter 4 did. Which means that we as Christians right now live when? We live now. We live now. We live in this window of time here. Now, you may not have enough of a biblical theology to uh, take what I just told you as evidence. So let me add this to the fire. The New Testament has no problem reusing the vocabulary and the theology of Micah to talk about us. For example, Peter identifies us in Peter chapter 1 as strangers and exiles. Where does he get that language of exile? From your passport? No, he gets it from here. He sees where we are now being in the same age, the same now as Micah's text, and he makes it clear. Here we see that it's the lame and the afflicted, and those who have been driven away that God is going to turn into the remnant. And what does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians? That in the church, God has not chosen many proud, or many powerful, or many of great status, but instead, he's chosen the weak of the world, and the foolish to confound the wise. Here, here we see a road through, and not around. We see exile, and not escapism. And in the same way, Paul tells the churches he planted in the book of Acts chapter 14 that it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. And here he sees Israel as if they are travailing in the labor pains of an incoming baby. And Paul tells us that the whole world 
is groaning with said labor pains, awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. Okay, we live in the now. And so like every other human being on earth, we don't have simple or easy answers to suffering. You can believe all that you, all that you like that because you are God's child, And because Jesus has forgiven you of your sins, that suffering is not something that will touch your life, but all you need is a week or two to disprove that concept. And this is especially significant for us today because we have tasted through the evolution of technology and through the progress of humanity, we have tasted the possibility of protection from some of these things, at least for some people, at least observably. We fully and completely believe that the gold pot of comfort at the end of the rainbow is reachable. Just a little bit more science, just a little bit more work, with just a little bit more education. In fact, we are wired as modern Americans to escape suffering. In fact, we've made it our right as human beings and a justification to avoid suffering wherever possible, wherever we can. The good life is defined as a life that is untouched by pain. But human life, as defined by Micah and the rest of the Bible, is a life that involves pain. And so we need, as I said earlier, a robust theology of suffering. This is especially true if we're going to think through Micah's primary purpose of speaking and writing, which is justice. What is the relationship between justice and suffering? Now there's the easy and obvious answer, which is injustice has a direct correspondence with suffering, right? In fact, when we call out injustice, it is primarily rooted in the fact that the consequence of injustice is suffering imposed on other human beings by their choices, by their privilege, by their power, as we've seen in Micah, that leads to suffering. But I want to point you in three different directions and talk about suffering on three different other levels that touch not just injustice, but justice. And touch not just the uh, oppressed, but those who partner with God and are longing for the coming kingdom. And I want to look at it at three layers. The first is the suffering of repentance. Okay. C.S. Lewis said tritely, because he's good at saying trite things, he said, now repentance is no fun at all. Okay. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life, that when you come to that juxtaposition between what God requires and what you actually want, even if there's a deeper desire that knows God is right and that his way is a way of health, the initial repentance is costly. And painful. And if you couple it with hidden sin, and part of that repentance is coming clean publicly, all the more so. One of the things it means to repent is to no longer seek to avoid the consequences of your bad behavior. Repentance is costly, and it is part of the story we read here because, as I already mentioned, the exile is not just about God bringing Jesus Christ and setting the world right, although mind-blowingly that is the case. This is the plan because he is going to bring about the Messiah. This is not a detour. This is not an interruption, but it is the means to reach where he's going. 
but it is also an act of discipline. It is also a punishment for Israel's behavior. It is also the consequence of their ongoing resistance to God's character and the voice of his prophets and the continuation of harmful treatment of their weak and the vulnerable. In fact, very interestingly, the word that's used for lame here in verse 7 when he identifies them as the lame, it's not the word that's usually used in the prophets for lameness. Instead, it's the one that's used all the way back in the book of Genesis about Jacob. Now, Jacob is Israel's namesake. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and that's where this whole name comes from. But Jacob is a scoundrel. He's born into a godly family with a godly heritage. His dad is Isaac, the son of Abraham. But he's a cheater and a sneak, a master manipulator who's used to getting his way. And by the time we find him in uh, Genesis 32, he's not seen his family in years because he's had to run from his brother who's threatened his life. He's not in the promised land that God has given him, but all outside of the land of Canaan. He has two wives, two concubines, and 12 kids, and he's trying to get his life in order. And so he decides it's time to return to the promised land. In fact, we can exacerbate things a little bit more, because the main reason he wants to concern is because he's worn out his welcome with Laban, his father-in-law. Okay. And so now he's got Laban behind him, and he hears that Esau, his brother, is coming with 300 men to meet him on the border of the land of Canaan, and he realizes he's stuck. And so he does what he's trained to do growing up in a family of God who's experienced the living God. Living God. Remember when he left the land, he has that vision of the staircase in heaven, and he has this promise made to him of what God's going to do in his life. He remembers those promises, And he goes to prayer and he prays, God, everything I have you have given me. In fact, you have given me promises that cannot be fulfilled if my brother kills me and my family today. So please help me. And I will tell you this, if you read Genesis 32, it is one of the best template prayers in all of the Old Testament. It's a prayer that when you need help, you should modify and pray. The problem is that Jacob doesn't believe it. And so this is what he does. He says effectively, in Jesus' name, amen. He goes, all right, here's what we're going to do. And he says, we're going to bribe my brother into a good mood. And so I'm going to send him droves of gifts, one at a time, and overwhelm his anger with my generosity, and then I will be safe. And he's so afraid of what's going to happen, he comes to a river, and he leaves his family on one side, and then the side where Esau is coming, he crosses the river, and he sleeps there alone. And the worst-case scenario happens in the middle of the night. He's jumped by a man in the dark. And for Jacob, he clearly assumes that this is Esau and that this is the end. But as he wrestles, he realizes he's wrestling with no mere man, but an angelic figure that he cannot best. Jacob, the heel catcher, which is what his name means and is a wrestling term, has finally met his match. And he begins to weep and he begs the angel not to go away without blessing him. And the angel does so. But that's not all he does. He also touches his hip, pops it out of joint, and for the rest of Jacob's days, he walks with a limp. It's that word for lame that's used here in this passage. Now, 
sometimes we don't understand the significance of that hip-touching, life-changing act. But what Jacob does when he's stuck in a corner is he runs. And when he stands before Esau tomorrow, either God saves his life or his life is over. In other words, Jacob wrestling with the angel is not about him wrestling with God in prayer, but God wrestling with him. God is saying, Jacob, I want to answer your prayer, so let me. Okay, the wound that he gives Jacob, the lameness that he strikes him with is discipleship. It's the only way that Jacob can become Israel and stop being Jacob. He has to get to the bottom of himself and have no other option but the living God he says he believes in. Okay. Because of this, suffering is often part of repentance. And like I said, it's involved in the actual initial act of repentance. It's costly. And the truth is, if we're going to talk about justice, as we have done every week, we need to recognize that the first problem is right here. It is about our behavior and our hearts and our sense of status and our need for comfort where justice has to come first. We cannot remove ourselves from the issues and talk about the problems as if they were out there. Because like Israel, we are the problem. Like Jacob, we are scoundrels. And so it begins there, and here is the blessed truth about this suffering. God cares more than you do about your repentance. And although he will never harm you, he will allow you to hurt for the sake of your health, like any good surgeon. And so we have to embrace the discipline of God. Knowing, as the author of Hebrews admits, that discipline is never fun while it's happening, but it is administered by a loving father for our care. And so Jacob, yes, he leaves that morning with two things, a limp and a blessing, but only the blessing will last. Okay? And so we have to, like Israel here, recognize that the exile is God's means to sanctification, the way of setting things right. That God's plan is actually to use the difficult job you have or the difficult brother-in-law or the difficult circumstances or the stress you're facing uh, you know, in your apartment building with your neighbors as the means of making you more like Christ. That means sometimes our forsaking of conflict or our avoiding of pain is rejecting the good things that God wants to do. And we have to learn that God is sovereign over the exile. And that even in the hardest things in our life, God is not just present, although he is, he is working. Okay? But we can't just stop there. Because there's another layer of suffering. We've talked about the suffering of repentance, but I also feel it's important for us this morning to talk about the suffering of love. In Philippians, Paul makes two references to what he calls the fellowship of suffering. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, and I know we don't use the word fellowship very often. We could put other synonyms in there like camaraderie or family or these types of things. 
but generally we pursue those things for pleasure and not for pain. Okay. Generally, we want a community that will help stave off the danger and the difficulty. But it's really interesting. Twice, Paul says things that you double take on in Philippians. The first one is in chapter 3 when he says that my desire is to grow all the more in knowing the power of the resurrection of Christ. And you go, sign me up. Life-giving, empowering, you know, overcoming death, victory, all of that is good. But then he says, and the fellowship of his suffering. You see, one of the things we have to understand, as we saw when we talked about repentance, is that the way to life is through death, not to avoid it. The way to the resurrection is through the cross. And Jesus didn't say, if you desire to follow me, I've already taken up the cross, so you have a life of luxury ahead of you. He says, if you desire to follow me, come take up your own cross and die daily. But we do so in hope, knowing that death, because of what happened in Jesus, leads to life. Okay? So that's the first one, the fellowship in suffering with Christ. He knows that to love Christ is to enter into and have in common the suffering of Christ to the degree that in Galatians, he says, I bear in my body the very marks of the crucifixion, the stigmata. And he's not whining there and saying, I follow Jesus and this is what it got me. He's saying, this is proof that I am one of Jesus's kids. This is proof that I am walking with Jesus. But then in chapter 4, he starts to thank his audience, the Philippians, okay? the Macedonians, that's the area that Philippi is in. He thanks them for being one of the few churches that financially supported his mission, despite the fact that they, as we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, are tremendously poor. But this is what he says, and I think it's amazing. He says, even though I've learned how to abase and how to abound, I know how to have and how to not have, and to rejoice in all my circumstances, I do rejoice in the fact that you've been giving to me. And he says, I rejoice that you have participated in my pain. And it's that same word for fellowship. And that's fascinating. Because what do we generally think is the goal of giving when there are needs? To end the need. What is the goal of giving? To remove the pain. Paul doesn't rejoice that they alleviated his pain, but they entered into it. And the truth is, the pursuit of justice always requires the pain of suffering. Because that's what love does. Love takes the pain of someone else and bears it alongside them. The Philippians didn't just give until Paul's problem was alleviated. They gave until they had their own problems. But now they were shared problems. And that's what love does. And so we have to recognize that justice always involves suffering because it involves loving those who suffer, which means entering into the shame and the derision of a community that is rejected and bearing the shame and derision of being with them and for them. It means costly giving that makes our life less comfortable so that other people can live at all. It means a loving sacrifice of everything we have for the sake of justice. And this is something we've got to, we've got to repent of, especially those of you who make up white America. There's this long-standing history 
of colonialism that actually goes all the way back to Rome, that makes a distinction between the civil and the barbarian, and believes that if we just show up, we become the benefactors, and we give, and they take, and they're changed, and we're the heroes. Only now, collectively, are we starting to go, what a mistake. Not only does it not work, but it has nothing to do with justice. Instead, justice requires that we don't just, from a distance, lob help without it costing us anything, but enter into the suffering of other people, locally and lovingly participating in the fellowship of suffering. Okay? And again, I would suggest to you that this one is implied not so much in this passage, but in the entire design and destiny of Israel. Go back and read the Old Testament law. This was the type of society they were supposed to be. And what happens when we get to the New Testament and the church is formed? People start to sell off their property and even their homes and share willingly and freely so that everybody has enough. It's costly. It's bad investment strategy. Okay. But it's love and it's fellowship and it's justice. And so there's an entering into the suffering of others that is implied by now. And let me just remind you very briefly that we have a perfect model for that in Jesus Christ. That's why when Paul is raising money for the poor church in Jerusalem, he tells those in Corinth, remember that he who was rich became poor so that you being poor might become rich. When we talk about Jesus loving us, and demonstrating that through his life and through the cross, here we have a God who is removed from suffering, being neither deserving of it nor weak enough to be exposed to it by other sources, and he willingly becomes a human being. Takes on not just hunger and thirst, but death itself. Why? Love. And then there's a third one. And the third one we're going to label patience. Now, this is a complicated issue. Israel is deserving of punishment, but that doesn't make the means of God's punishment, Babylon, good people. They are not loving parents involved in God's plan to bring discipline. They are oppressors themselves. In fact, that's the thing that strikes Habakkuk so hard that he has a theological crisis And he says, God, I know Israel's a mess, and I've been praying, how long until you bring justice on Israel? But Babylon? They're way worse than we are. Right? That's the tension of the book of Habakkuk, and it's real. And you know what Jeremiah tells Israel while they live in Babylon? He says, seek their peace. Seek the peace of the neighbor who lives next door, who was a soldier who burned down your home in Jerusalem and slaughtered your neighbors. Seek the peace of a kingdom that trampled and crushed your kingdom into the ground for its own glory. Why? Again, we encounter something that is unique to the Christian view of justice. It's a Christian view that that desires the salvation, not just of the oppressed, but of the oppressor. 
It's a Christian view that longs for the repentance of those who misuse their power, not just so that there's no longer a misuse of power, but for their own good. It's not one that just calls us to love and suffer for our neighbors, but also for our enemies. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the question. Why is the now so long? God says he's going to come back and set things right. God says that he has a plan. But when he tells his people this, it's 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And now we can add 2,000 more years of watching the turmoil and the difficulty, the earthquakes and the injustice and the impression and the wars. We look at the hope in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we say, why not now? I get that it has to be hard until Jesus comes back, but why can't he just come back? And the answer is the same. It's because of patience. Listen to the words of Miroslav Wolf. Wolf is a Croatian, a survivor of the genocide that happened in the Balkans. And his book, Exclusion and Embrace, is him wrestling with the profound concept of the forgiveness and reconciliation involved in Christianity and the true and utter need for justice to be done for those who have experienced the worst that humans have to offer. And this is what he says. He says, Should not a loving God be patient and keep luring the perpetrator into goodness? This is exactly what God does. God suffers the evildoers through history as God has suffered them on the cross. But how patient should God be? The day of reckoning must come, not because God is too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence. And every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. How long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood, cry out the souls under the altar to the sovereign Lord in Revelation 6. We're uncomfortable with the response which calls the souls to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who would soon be killed as they themselves had been killed. But the response underlines that God's patience is costly, not simply for God, but for the innocent. Waiting for evildoers to reform means letting suffering continue. God's patience is costly. It's costly for the victims. It's costly for those who wait. It's costly for those who cry how long. But that means that it's not surprising then then for us to participate in Jesus' mission also involves the patience of non-retaliation of enduring mistreatment, of seeking reconciliation even when it makes us again and anew vulnerable to pain. Wolf has this amazing part in his book where he analyzes the physical reality of an embrace and what it says about the concept of reconciliation. And the first thing that he points out is that this posture is inherently vulnerable. It's probably not when you hug your mom or your husband but it's significantly vulnerable when you extend yourself like this to those who have hurt and harmed you and hate you. But he points out it's also essential 
for the embrace. You cannot hug with your fists up. You have to put your place in a place of vulnerability. One of my favorite Christian films, and this is not a film made by Christians, and I don't even mean that it's about a priest and that makes it a Christian film. I mean that ideologically, one of my favorite Christian films is a film called Calvary. It's a film about a priest uh, who is sitting in the confessional, and on the other side of this private confessional, a man tells him that he was raped by a priest as a young child for many years, and that that priest recently died, and he never got to have his revenge. And he said, but what good would it be to kill a bad priest anyway, so I've decided to kill a good one. I want you to meet me on the beach on Friday. I'm going to take your life. And the movie is about the next week as this priest processes this, and tries to figure out what to do about it, and goes about his life in his tremendously postmodern parish that is full of tremendously human problems, unbelief, doubt, shame, etc. But the end, he shows up at the beach, and his life is taken. And the question you're left with is twofold. The first one is, why does he go? He goes instead of fleeing because it's the only opportunity for that man to not kill him. He goes to give him the opportunity and appeal to him one more time not to do this. And this is why I say it's the most Christian film because his daughter, the priest's daughter who lost his life at the hands of this man, she goes and visits him at the end in prison. That's forgiveness. That's reconciliation. But patience is costly. Enduring insult without returning insult, turning the other cheek, continuing to maintain a posture of not pulling the trigger on cosmic justice because you long for all to come to repentance is costly. But it is also the means of salvation And it is one that you have personally experienced because it's while you were the very enemies of God that Christ died for you. Patience is not something God asks of us that he isn't giving himself. And it's not something he asks of us that we haven't experienced the benefit of. But this means an unwillingness to justify the means to attain the ends. It means an unwillingness to forsake the love of humanity, even for the protection of our own lives. It is clearly and certifiably suffering. But as we've seen across the board, it is the suffering of Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it, and we should embrace it, because it leads to the possibility of resurrection. And so what we see here in Micah with this hope of the day when justice truly will be done, and it will be done, doesn't go around suffering but through it. And because it goes through suffering, produces something that wasn't possible otherwise, which is not just justice, but the justification of the ungodly and the setting of right of wrongs, forgiveness and reconciliation and life that grows out of death. Let's pray. Father, I worry for us. I worry for us because we live in a a context 
that embraces comfort, not just being as a good and godly given gift, but as a pursuit that reigns above all others. And so often, Lord, we face it in our prayers, and you know that we are but dust. You know that our life is hard, but sometimes all we pray for is escape. And sometimes our response, even to injustice, is just to move to another neighborhood or change states or these types of things, and yet you're calling it to us to something more radical. You're calling us to incarnation. You're calling us to enter into the pain and the problems and the difficulties, not as the solution or as the savior, but as advocates of your love, representations, many gospels of the good news of the God who enters into suffering and enters into injustice and enters even into evil itself and does not get overcome with evil, as Paul says, but overcomes evil with good. Lord, I pray for every person here that you would lay a finger on the places where their comfort is standing in the way of your will. Whether it's in the place of your call to repentance, which is good and healing even though it's hard, or the call to love, not just in handouts, but in our very life, or it's the call to patience, to endure and not retaliate, trusting justice and even vengeance to you, but seeking to be an ambassador of reconciliation now. Just highlight those places in our life, Lord, and as we pursue them, I pray that you train us to see the life that grows in a soil of death, to rejoice in the fellowship of our suffering with Christ, that we might attain, if by any means, the resurrection from the dead. I pray this in your name. Amen.